Our sermon this morning is entitled, Abraham Justified by Faith. We're in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, so turn there in your Bibles. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 4, verse 1 on page 885. So turn, turn there, and let's consider together. I am I'm pretty confident, I'm 99% sure at this point in my life that I am not going to be a professional athlete. I think that... That ship is probably, never say never, right? I still train in the offseason in case someone, in case a team calls, but I'm pretty sure that if I was going to play in the NFL or the NBA, those days are behind me. Uh, I'm 38, and so one of the things that happens with guys my age, when we, when we realize that our, the peak of our athleticism and our athletic prowess and progress is behind us, is that all of the tales of all, all of the tales that you tell about your athletic ability and your athletic accomplishments grow and grow. They take on this mythical status about how you used to be the best player on your team and how you set all these scoring records and things like that. And you know that no one can, no one can prove you wrong anymore because it's all in the past. The, I, was, I was thinking about that, that concept this week and it, it reminded me of one of the one of the more classic examples of this in the movie Napoleon Dynamite, where there's a guy, Uncle Rico, who says, he's hanging out with, with uh, his, one of his nephews, and he says, man, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a football a quarter mile. And he looks, he points at these mountains on the horizon, he says, how much you want to bet I can throw a football over those mountains over there? And then he starts to kind of contemplate and look within himself, and he goes, man, if the coach would have put me in in the fourth quarter, we would have been state champions. There's no doubt in my mind that we would have won won the state championship, right? Like every guy, as soon as they, you know, as soon as they move past their, their kind of time of athleticism starts to think in terms of, man, I could have gone pro or I was really good. If I were, if I were to tell you that I, if I were to tell you that I could go outside right now and throw a football 100 yards in the air, you could respond to me in any number of ways, but one one response might be, that's not possible. I don't, th- I don't think you can. I think that you're, mis- I think that you're just misguided or, or just maybe have made a mistake. Because, Ben, the, the record for the longest pass ever thrown uh, during a football game is 75 yards. So the, the strongest arm that plays at the highest level, throwing the ball as far as he possibly can with everything on the line, cannot throw it 100 yards, so therefore it stands to reason that you can't throw the ball 100 yards either, right? If, if there's an achievement that even the greatest person that you can conceive of cannot meet, then that proves that no one else can meet that uh, achievement either. That's kind of the, the logic there. And that logic is the same logic that Paul employs in Romans chapter to reinforce and further prove his point about his gospel that he has been articulating uh, up until now in the, in the book. Romans 1 through 3, Paul establishes that all humanity is under sin, deserving of the wrath and judgment of God, that we've all sinned, that none of us can stand before God on the basis of our works. And so God has made a way for us to be saved by trusting in Christ. No one is good enough to be saved by works, so we must be saved by faith. Now, if you're a Jewish person in the first century listening to that, a religious leader or one of their contemporaries, you're probably thinking, I don't agree. You haven't, 
you haven't uh, proven your, your point to my, like, you, Paul, you might think that you are not good enough to be saved by your works, that you're not holy enough and not righteous enough, but frankly, I think I am. And most of my peers, most of my contemporaries, most of my colleagues, we think that we are. And so Paul is going to kind of take that uh, objection or that skepticism about his gospel and the necessity to come to Christ through faith. He's going to take that and he's going to say, if there is an achievement that even the greatest person that you can conceive of cannot meet, then it stands to reason that you cannot meet that achievement either. Enter Father Abraham, the greatest person that Paul you know, that the greatest person that, that the religious leaders in Israel, the greatest uh, person that, that a person in Israel, a Jewish person in Israel, could conceive of. This is the father of the faith. This is the man that God called out of his former way of life into a new life, into a new covenant, right? He gave him land and promises and descendants and a nation, right? Abraham is just the, he's the original, he's the, the guy, right? He is you know, everyone just took for granted that Abraham was righteous. He was as righteous as you could be, and that he was justified because of his righteousness. And so Paul is thinking, if I can get you, if I can prove to you and get you to see that Abraham was not righteous enough to be saved by his works, but that Abraham needed to trust in Jesus, Abraham needed to receive a righteousness from outside of himself, if I can get you to see that about Abraham then that will go a long way in convincing you that you need to trust in, in Christ, that you need to look outside of yourself for a righteousness that is not your own. So Romans 1 through 3, we're all under sin, can't be saved by works, that's why we need to trust in Jesus. Romans 4, let's take a case study. Let's look at how Abraham was saved and see if we can use that as a template for how we can be can be saved. So we're going to look at Romans 4, 1 through 12 this week, and we're going to look at uh, verses 13 and following next week. Then we're going to press pause and and, uh, jump into another book for a few few weeks. But let's start in verse 1 and get rolling. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it, count, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's Romans 4, 1 through 12. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the, the king, and we are grateful to you. We're grateful that we uh, have the privilege of knowing you and hearing from you, God. We, we come to you this morning gathering around your word, gathering under the authority of your word, praying that you would speak to us through your word, praying that you would convict us of sin and assure us of your uh, grace, that you would meet us, Uh, and bless us, and and be present here with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so start with verse 1. What shall we say, then, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Paul's saying, all right, how was Abraham saved? Was Abraham saved by works? Because if so, then everything that I've said up until now is all null and void, right? I've been saying that everyone is under sin, everyone needs God's grace, everyone needs to trust in, in Christ. And so if Abraham did not, then my gospel falls apart. So was Abraham saved on the basis of his good works and the righteous deeds that he did, or was he saved on the basis of his, of, of his, his faith? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's saying, if, if Abraham was saved by works, then my gospel falls apart. Romans 1 through 3, go ahead and tear them out of your Bible. They're of no, no consequence. And if Abraham was justified by works, then what I just said in Romans three twenty-seven. Right? He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, right? There's no such thing as bo- the, the Christian worldview has no space for boasting because the Christian worldview ha- uh, is, is not based on salvation by works. And so Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, my gospel is shot. And if Abraham is justified by works, then he has something to, to boast about. Now, this verse is a little bit tricky. The way that it comes across in English is a little weird. It's in, it, looks, it looks, at first glance, like he's saying, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. Which kind of means, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, um, but just he would, he would be able to boast, but he wouldn't be able to boast before God. But that, that doesn't quite make sense, because the fact of the matter is, if Abraham was justified by works, if, hypothetically then he would have something to boast about and he would actually have something to boast about before God because he would have been justified by his, by his works. And so the way that the phrasing looks in English comes across as if this last phrase, but not before God, uh, is a qualif- it's, it's a qualifier of what's come before it. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but just not before God. So he could maybe boast before other people, he could boast before his friends and family, but he just couldn't go and boast before God. English makes it look like a qualifying clause, which would mean that. But in the Greek, it's most likely not a, a qualifying clause, but a negation, a negating clause. So it might, 
a better way to maybe capture what we see in the original language would be for this to say, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. Then he has something to boast about. But Abraham cannot boast. Abraham was not justified by works, and therefore he cannot boast before God. Right? So it's, it's probably not uh, you know, distinguishing between boasting before men and before God, which makes the verse kind of uh, strange or difficult to un- understand in the flow of Paul's argument. Rather, it's probably just a negation. So if Abraham was justified by works, then he could boast, but he wasn't, so he can't boast before God. It's probably what, what Paul is trying to communicate in, in verse 2. For what is the scripture? And then now he's going to support that, right? He's going to say, here's why from the Old Testament I'm going to prove to you that Abraham was not justified by works and that Abraham could not boast before God because what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a quote from Genesis chapter 15 and kind of serves for the entire foundation of Paul's argument for the entire uh, chapter, or the entirety of Romans chapter 4. In Genesis 15, uh, God comes and reiterates his promises and his covenant to Abraham, right? I'm going to give you a great reward, a great nation. And Abraham uh, kind of says back to God, uh, God, that's not, like your promises about giving me descendants and a, and a nation and being the father of a nation sound great, but at the moment, I don't have any children, I'm really old. My wife is really old. Uh, we weren't able to, uh, you know, have children even when we were in our childbearing years. We were experiencing infertility. Now we're past our childbearing years. And so we don't have any kids. We don't think we're ever going to have any kids. All of my stuff at the moment, my will, gives it all to my servant, Eleazar. And so the idea of having so many descendants that they make up an entire nation is a pretty ambitious goal. And God says, in Genesis 15, verse 4, God says, Behold, this man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your own son, Abraham, he will be your heir. Right? And then God brings Abraham outside, and he says, Abraham, look up at the heavens, look up at the stars, if you are even able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. God reiterates the promise that he made to Abraham. And then we come to verse 6, which Paul quotes. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So, big, sweeping, incredible promise. The likelihood of which uh, coming true is slim to none. It's virtually impossible. Abraham does not have the ability to will the promise of God into existence. He doesn't have, he can't manufacture a child for him and Sarah from within himself. If he could, he would have done it already. God, Abraham needs God to accomplish for him something that he is not able to do. He needs God to give him something that he cannot attain on his own. And Abraham believes God believes that God is going to uh, be true to his promises, even though it seems unlikely, and even though Abraham is not able to, to do it himself. Abraham believes God, and God counts it to him as righteousness. This word counted in verse 3 is a financial term. It means to 
to calculate or to compute. Um, or it also means to, to apply or to uh, credit or to impute, right? If, if um, you know, if, if, there's, if, there's a, if there's a bank account that has $1,000 in it and a banker, you know, the bookkeeper looks at it and declares there is $1,000 in this bank account, right? I'm, I'm counting it. I am assessing it. I am calculating it and declaring that this is the amount that's in this account, right? That's the word that's being used here to count. Or uh, it could also be used in a similar uh, kind of uh, adjacent meaning of if there's zero dollars in a bank account and the banker comes to it and executes a transaction and says, I'm going to move $1,000 from this account into this account, and now this account that formerly had zero now has $1,000. I am crediting it with $1,000. I am declaring it. I'm, I'm, I'm imputing $1,000 to this account, crediting it with $1,000, and declaring that it now has a balance of $1,000. That's the, that's the word, the financial term that's being used here when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited, it was imputed, it was assessed, it was declared, it was counted to him as righteousness. So God promises a nation, God promises a child, Abraham cannot accommodate those things on his own, Abraham doesn't have the the resources, God says, trust me, I'll take care of it, God accomplishes the thing that he promised, God gives Abraham a son named Isaac, he gives Abraham a nation called Israel, right, God accomplishes, God does, God provides, Abraham watches, Abraham receives, Abraham trusts, Abraham believes, and because of his trust, right, uh, uh, the, the righteousness that God requires is imputed, it's credited to Abraham. God looks at Abraham in the same way that a banker would look at a, a ledger and declare a balance of an account. God looks at Abraham and declares that Abraham is righteous. God then treats Abraham as if he were righteous, even though Abraham were not, was not actually righteous. It's kind of what's being communicated by Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and what's, what Paul is kind of drawing on here in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And so we can immediately see why Paul is drawing on that to talk about the gospel, because it's analogous to the, the Christian life, right? right? God requires a righteousness of us that we do not have, a righteousness that we cannot attain, and then God accomplishes that very thing that he requires. Jesus comes and fulfills the righteousness of God. God accomplishes, God does, God provides. We watch, we believe, we trust, we receive. And then on the basis of our trusting, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. God credits us with Christ's righteousness. God looks at us and sees us as if we have lived the perfect life of of Christ. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Christian trusts in God, trusts in Christ, and then the righteousness of Christ is imputed. It's, it's counted to him. And now Paul is going to kind of tease out why that's important and, and, and ha- the implications of that theological reality on uh, our life and our heart posture as a Christian. He says, now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
Talked about this a little bit last week. In fact, I, I ripped Paul off. I used the same illustration that he used here. Um, right? That, that when, when a person, uh, the, the uh, works begets obligation, which begets entitlement and self-reliance and pride, right? To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his, when you, get, when you go to work, you get paid, and when you get paid, it's not a gift, it's not charity, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a donation that they're making on your behalf, it's your due. Your employer sit, you and your employer agree on a salary or a wage. The, the worker's responsible to do these tasks. The employer is responsible to pay this money. And then those, those kind of goods and services are exchanged, and it's, it's done out of obligation. I had a, I had a friend uh, in college who worked construction all summer, worked for kind of a friend of a friend, um, and, you know, got, got, got paid in, in cash and... Uh, you know, uh, at, at the beginning of the summer, everything was great. He'd work. He would get paid on time. Everything was fine. But somewhere around the middle of the summer, the paychecks or the, the pay the pay amounts started coming a day or a few days late. And the guy who hired him kind of, you know, oh, you know, the customers are slow paying me. And so I'm going to be a little slow paying you. I'm sorry, but I'm doing my, my best. And each kind of pay, you know, period came a little bit later until the end of the summer. He was about a month behind on his paying my friend. And he, he looked at him and said, hey, I just don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't have any money. I don't, I'm not going, I'm not going to ever pay you for the last month of work that you did for me because, you know, either this, this, that, and the other happened with me and the customer or cash flow problems or whatever. I, I wish I could pay you. If I could, I would, but I can't. So I'm sorry. And, you know, so he, 21-year-old dude working, you know, 100-degree heat in the Harrisonburg, you know, the middle of the summer, hauling lumber and concrete around a construction site for, for weeks on end, and then gets stiffed and doesn't get paid his wages, which is, right, stealing, right? Like, that, like my friend took time and effort and labor and, and that, he was, that was given in exchange for the promise of money, and then the employer... Sto- it's not like, you know, the employer uh, thought about giving him a bonus that he wasn't obligated to give him and then decided against it. It's that he refused to pay him the wages that he was obligated to, to, to pay him, right? That's why, you don't have to, that's why you don't have to write a thank you note every time your employer gives you a paycheck, right? Because, because it's, it's a... It's a it's an obligation, right? There, there's, there's, it's not, a, it's not a, a matter of charity. It's a matter of, I've given you this thing. You have to give me that thing. And Paul says, in terms of soteriology, in terms of the, the, the understanding of salvation, if our salvation is, is attained in the same way that a paycheck is attained from an employer, then we would have the, we would walk into the presence of God with the same uh, swagger and the same s- demands and the same sense of entitlement for eternal life that an employee would walk into HR and say, it's payday, give me my, my paycheck, the wages that I am, am due. 
if salvation is by works, then that's the relationship we have with God. That's the posture that we can have toward God. This posture of, you and I are peers. I've given you what you demanded. Now you give me what I am entitled to. If salvation were attained by by works. And frankly, there are a lot of people who understand salvation to work. The majority of people. The majority of people, the majority of people who identify as Christians, I might even say, probably would think along these lines, right? They would think that they uh, are going to heaven or that they hope that they will go to heaven because they've been a good person, right? And so they hope that God will give them eternal life because of how they lived in, in this life, right? Uh, salvation by works begets obligation, and obligation begets pride and self-righteousness and entitlement. But then the flip side of the coin is in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but to the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as as righteousness. So the flip side, right? This guy works and feels entitled to eternal life. This guy does not work. This guy recognizes that his works are not sufficient. They cannot add up. And so instead he trusts God and trusts in the mercy of God and hopes that God will justify him even though he doesn't deserve it. He recognizes that he is uh, not deserving of God's grace. And God counts him as righteous. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to him so that God can treat him as if he lived the perfect life of Christ. Paul is saying Abraham's righteousness was imputed to him. The Christian's righteousness is imputed to him. And in verse 6, we're going to see that David's righteousness was imputed to him, right? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So it's not just Abraham, right? right? Abraham was the, the father of the faith, the most righteous person that we could conceive of, the patriarch of Israel. But David is on the Mount Rushmore, right? He's the greatest king. He's the gold standard, the measure by which all other kings will be, be judged. David was the man after God's own heart. So, so Abraham would be kind of the leader in the clubhouse of being able to uh, earn his own salvation by works. And David would be the first runner up. Let's see if David could, could accomplish salvation by his, by, on, by his works, or let's see if David needed to trust in God and have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, have his sins forgiven. Here's what David says in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Not blessed are those who are righteous enough to merit the favor of God, but blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. It was, it was imputed to him as righteousness. And David recognizes that he is guilty of sin and deserving of punishment. And he needs God to forgive it. He needs God to impute his sin to not count his sin against David but to count it against someone else instead of David he David needs God to impute his sin elsewhere and to take righteousness and to impute it to David 
Paul says, right, I am going to prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt, right, I'm going to answer every possible objection. Everyone that reads this book, everyone that reads this letter is going to walk away realizing that their only hope is in Christ, right? You may have started thinking you were good enough, but by now I want you to see that Jesus is your only, the, the, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, the one that you look up to, the one that you trace your lineage back to. He was not good enough. He needed God's grace, right? The greatest king that there ever was in our nation who won all of these battles and ruled with justice and righteousness, the, the warrior shepherd king that we all revere and aspire to be like. He was not good enough. He needed God's grace. And you, reader, right? First century Jewish person reading this letter, or you, 21st century American reading the book of Romans, you need God's grace too. Abraham was not saved by works. David was not saved by works. We cannot be saved by works. At which point, the first century Jewish reader might respond, okay, Paul, you've made your point. You've made your point that no human being can be saved by works. You've made your point that even Abraham and even David, these guys weren't saved by works. I see it. I get it. But the fact remains, those guys were both Jewish. They weren't Gentiles. Right? Right? But they they are, that's the, the very first Jewish person, the prototypical Jew, the father of Judaism, and the quintessential king of, of the Jews. And so, so Paul, your argument is perfectly fine, but I could still respond, I could still rebut by saying that uh, even though they were not saved because of their righteousness and their works, I could still argue that maybe Abraham and David were saved because of their Jewishness, because of their because of how they observe the Sabbath and the dietary laws and, and their circumcision. If I can prove that David or Abraham were saved at least in part because of their Jewishness, then that means that I can be saved at least in part because of my Jewishness or my religiousness. And then I can hold on to some shred, some sliver of my self-sufficiency and some little right to boast before God if I can prove that Abraham's circumcision played a role in Abraham's justification. So Paul's going to dive into that in the last three verses, last four verses. Is then, is this blessing only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? Because we, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So, how then was it counted to him? Was it counted before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? So Paul says, good point, good objection. I'm glad you asked. So let's go to the tape. Like, let's, let's figure out exactly when Abraham was justified and kind of cross-reference that, overlay that against exactly when Abraham was circumcised so that we can determine whether or not Abraham was saved because of his circumcision. Because if he was, then he wasn't saved just by faith. He was saved by faith and religious observances. But if he wasn't, if Abraham was justified before his circumcision, then my gospel still 
holds true. So let's look at the timeline. Let's look at the, at the tape. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith from when he was still uncircumcised. If Abraham had gotten circumcised first and then God had imputed his righteousness to him, if God had waited to declare Abraham righteous until after he was circumcised, then you've got a point. You've got an argument. So let's see how it all works. Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham out of Ur and says, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. I will bless you. I will bless the world through you. In the following chapters, uh, Abraham goes down to Egypt temporarily, and he comes back, and then he has some some, uh, interactions with his nephew Lot. And then we arrive at Genesis 15, where God declares Abraham to be righteous on account of his faith. Abraham trusts in God, and God... uh, Uh, imputes righteousness to Abraham. God declares Abraham to be righteous on account of his faith. Then, the next chapter, Genesis 16, uh, Abraham commits adultery, conceives a child with his wife's servant named Hagar, which, to be clear, is not good, bad, it's sinful, but the text does give us a detail that's helpful to construct the timeline. Chapter 16, verses 15 to 16, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called his name Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, fast forward to Genesis 17, the very next chapter, where God kind of installs and kind of, you know, um, uh, ratifies the covenant of circumcision. Genesis 17, verse 9, God says to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring for generations. This is my covenant, which shall be between me and you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Then in verse 24, it says, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. So now we've got a timeline that we've constructed, right? At some undetermined age, we don't know when, but at some point in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And then sometime thereafter, God imputes righteousness to Abraham. God declares that Abraham is justified because of his faith. And then sometime after that, Abraham turns 86. And then 13 years after that, Abraham turns 99, and that's when he gets circumcised. So his circumcision happens at least 13 years after his justification after the the point in time where God declared him righteous because of his faith. Some some teachers in Israel at the time claimed that it was as much as 29 or 30 years later, but it was at least 13 years later. I mean, if Abraham was declared justified right before Ishmael was born, there's at least a 13-year gap, if if not more. So if Abraham was righteous, if God declared Abraham to be righteous prior to his circumcision, which he did, then we can deduce for sure that circumcision must not be essential to being justified, right? Justification must come by faith alone and not faith plus religious observances or or rituals. And here's why God constructed that timeline in that way. The purpose 
was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, but specifically not those who are merely circumcised, but those who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's a mouthful. It's a big sentence. So we'll just kind of break it break it down. Right? Uh, The reason why God constructed that timeline in that way is so that so that Abraham would be the father of those who believe without being circumcised. That's Gentile believers, non-Jewish, you know, people who are not Jewish, not religious, don't do all of the rituals, dietary laws, observing the Sabbath. They don't do all that stuff, but they do trust in Christ. They do believe in Jesus and walk with him. And Paul says, if that's you, if you're a Gentile who is not Jewish in any sense of the word, but you do trust in Jesus, Abraham is your father. You are a part of the spiritual people of God. Abraham is your father. God intentionally waited 13 years for Abraham to be circumcised so that you could look at that point in his life and say, we we trust in God and we can be justified just like Abraham was prior to his being circumcised. So Abraham is the father of Gentile believers who do not, or who, who do, trust in Christ. And here's another reason in verse 12, right? So one reason is so that Gentile believers can look to Abraham as their father, be be included in the people of God. And the other reason why God orchestrated that timeline in that way is so that Abraham would be the father of the circumcised, that is Jewish people, but not all Jewish people but specifically those Jewish people who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. So according to Paul, if you're in first century, you're a Jewish person, you're practicing all of the rituals of Judaism, you're the most religious person that you know, observances, rituals, feasts, festivals. If you do all of those things, but you do not trust in Jesus, if you're just going through the religious motions and you're not trusting in Christ, then Paul says, Abraham is not your father. The justification that you think that you have received, you don't have it. Because justification, being declared righteous by God, has nothing to do with circumcision or Jewishness or religious rituals. It has everything to do with trusting God and receiving mercy and imputed righteousness from God. The two things that are being communicated by this timeline is, one, there are Gentiles who will be justified by God, and two, there are Jewish people who will not be justified by by God, both of which are incredibly scandalous to the first century Jewish reader of this letter. Right? Their whole thing was, we are better than Gentiles. Right? Because we're Jewish. Abraham is our father, and we're going to inherit eternal life because of it. Right? And there are no Jewish people that will not receive salvation from God, that will not be justified or declared righteous. Right? And here's Paul saying that 
A, there are Gentiles who are going to be reconciled to God, declared righteous by God, and spend eternity in heaven with God. And B, there are Jewish people who will, will not. If, if, if a first century Jewish person would be mad at the thought of Gentiles being included in God's plan for salvation, which they would, then they would be furious at the thought of Jewish people being excluded from God's plan for salvation. And that's exactly what Paul is articulating. He's, he's saying that the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in the sense that all people outside of the nation of Israel now have an opportunity to be saved. They can trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to move to Israel. You don't have to stop eating bacon or lobster. You can, you can be a Gentile person, trust in Jesus, be justified, reconciled to God. The gospel is inclusive of you. And the gospel is exclusive, meaning that it is only for those people, Jewish or not, who trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're the most Jewish person you know. It doesn't matter if you're the high priest himself. If you don't trust in Jesus, you cannot inherit eternal life. That's Paul's gospel. Which might sound, I mean, let's be honest, it sounds, you know, sounds like it's not super relevant to us today, right? I mean, most of us are Gentiles, but like, you know, what's with us all, you know, Gentile, Jew, circumcision, you know, it's not, not super relevant, but it's more relevant than we might give it credit for, especially when we consider how analogous it is to actual real-life things that we experience, right? Consider reading and considering this text, but instead of, uh, you know, instead of seeing the word Jewish, insert the word religion, right? Religious, or insert the word identifies as a Christian, And instead of the word Gentile, insert the word non-religious or does not identify as a Christian. Instead of the word circumcision, replace it with any religious ritual that you'd like, baptism, you know, going to church, youth group, whatever, whatever it is, right? And now we can kind of see the relevance a little bit more clearly. Paul is effectively saying... All of those other people out there, the people that you look down on, the people that I look down on for being different than me, right? Different cultural backgrounds, different religions, atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Buddhists, people that don't conform to my idea in my head of what a good Christian person is from a good Christian family, people that commit crimes and are incarcerated, people that do drugs, people that are a burden or a drain on society, people that you do not approve of, people that you think are going to hell, Paul is saying those people can be saved. Those people are not uh, outside of the reach of God's grace. In fact, they are the prime candidates for God's salvation. If they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus to save them, he will save them. They are uh, they, they would be every bit as much uh, a child of God as you are, and they will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus just like you will. 
That's what Paul's communicating in Romans 4. He's also saying, just because you call yourself a Christian from a good Christian family, just because you think of yourself as a good person, just because you grew up in church, just because you got baptized, just because you never smoked or drank or did drugs, just because you have perfect attendance at all of the church functions and and events, just because you do all of those things does not mean that you are going to inherit eternal life because like Abraham's circumcision, none of those things are determinative, none of those things are sufficient to save you and ensure that you will spend eternity in heaven. It's possible to do all of those things and fail to trust in Jesus, refuse to trust in Jesus, and spend eternity in hell. All of those religious things are great. There's nothing wrong with them. We should do them. But none of them in and of themselves can secure our salvation. So salvation is not merely for the circumcised. Salvation is not merely for the religious Right? Yeah, I mean, literally. Like, to make him the father of the circumcised, but not merely, not those who are merely circumcised, but those who have the faith of Abraham. So, so Abraham is the father of religious people. Abraham is the father of people who identify as Christians, but not those who merely identify as Christians, and that's it. Those people who identify as Christians and their identification as a Christian is reflective of a heart posture where they are trusting in Christ where they are walking in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had. God does not guarantee salvation to anyone because they are religious. Salvation is for those religious people who trust in Jesus, people whose outward religion is a reflection of an inward heart of repentance and faith. It's the gospel that Paul is preaching, right? Justification... Justification does not come by works, it comes by faith. If if justification were by works, then we could boast, but it's not, so we can't. And Abraham is proof positive of that. Abraham believed God, trusted in God. God imputed his righteousness to Abraham so that Abraham could be accepted by God. And all of that happened before Abraham ever did anything that was even mildly religious at all, thereby proving that salvation comes by faith and not by works and not by religious observance. Turning from sin, trusting in Christ who died in your place to pay your penalty, who rose from the dead to give you new life. Abraham is rock-solid proof from the Old Testament that salvation comes through faith. And Abraham serves as an invitation for us thousands of years later to follow in the footsteps of his faith, to turn from our sin, to trust in Jesus so that God will declare us righteous and welcome us into his presence for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for making a way for us to be justified. Lord, we acknowledge that we could never be good enough, we could never be righteous enough to earn our salvation through works, we could never be devout enough to to earn our salvation through religious observances. Lord, we need your grace, we need a Savior.
And so we look to you to save us. We turn from our sin and we trust in you so that we can receive your righteousness and be justified in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.